It's a joy to be back in the house of the Lord. We were traveling the last couple of weeks, and it's always good to be back. Thank you to so many who pray for us as we prepare and share the Word of God at the chapel. It's an encouragement and a joy to know that so many are praying. We thank the Lord also for travel mercies for our family. Some We were in Florida, then in Michigan. Andrew was in Vancouver. Cameron was in Scotland. So everybody's back home safely. And we are truly thankful for answered prayers. You know, we've been looking at different subjects during these summer months. And at Bible Hour, we've looked at the attributes, at some of the attributes of God. Uh, We've looked at His omniscience, uh, as though we can ever look at (laughs) We've briefly looked at His omniscience, the fact that God is truth, His changelessness or immutability. Today is a little bit different when we're actually looking at a passage of Scripture in the book of Habakkuk in chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. One of the minor prophets in the order in Scripture. It comes after Nahum, after Micah and Nahum. Uh, remember when Dave Reed was here, he would, when he was doing the minor prophets, he would always ask, why are they called minor? And uh, it's not because they were any less important. It's not because they were children. <laughs> it's just because the books are shorter and uh, maybe 1 to 12 chapters or so, 14 uh, Habakkuk is uh, just a little background on the prophet and the first two chapters of the book before we get to chapter 3 his name, Habakkuk, has a dual meaning it means to embrace or to wrestle to embrace or to wrestle and we will see him do that with both those things in this brief book with three chapters He was a contemporary of uh, the prophet Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah, which places him during the reigns of King Josiah and King Jehoiakim. Uh, Assyria was no longer the dominant world power. Babylon was in power, and King Nebuchadnezzar had defeated Egypt and was about to attack Judah. Now, the prophet Jeremiah had already announced that Babylon would invade Judah, that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, and the nation sent into exile. And this happened during the period of 606 to 586 B.C. Habakkuk's brief uh, book indicates he knew the Old Testament scriptures well. He was a competent theologian, had great faith in God. Chapter 3 really is a psalm, or it was sung. That's what the first verse says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionoth, which is the exact meaning is unknown, but it's probably a musical term. So it's possible that he might have been a priest uh, who led worship in the temple, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, he was a priest that called, was called to be a prophet. The key verse, perhaps unfamiliar to all, in uh, chapter 2, verse 4. If you turn back there, to chapter 2, verse 4, the last part of the verse. This is the New King James. But the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. That was the foundation of the Reformation movement, wasn't it? The just shall live by faith. He just sang a song by Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. That verse, the just shall live by faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, in Romans 1.17, where the emphasis is on the just in the book of Galatians, in Galatians 3.11, where the emphasis is on the shall live part of it. And in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10.38, where the emphasis is on faith. 
by faith. It takes three New Testament epistles to expand on this one little phrase that God spoke to Habakkuk in in chapter 2, verse 4. I said earlier that the name Habakkuk has a dual meaning, to embrace or to wrestle. And he does both. He wrestles with the problem of how could a holy God use a wicked nation like Babylon to chasten his own chosen people? He wrestles with the spiritual decline of the nation of Israel. And why was God not doing anything about it? Or to put it another way, why does God seem so indifferent? Or perhaps, why does God seem so inconsistent? Those are problems that we wrestle with perhaps today even. Isn't that true? Why does God seem so indifferent? Perhaps you've been praying for something for a long time and nothing seems to happen. Or why does God seem so inconsistent? Somebody else does doing well who's really, you know, Psalm 73, why did the wicked prosper? When uh, our daughter Kristen was going through her cancer journey, many times we would pray earnestly, and it would seem that God was not answering or indifferent. And then we would see something happen that you could clearly see the unmistakable hand of God answering prayer. That happened many times. Today is July 30th. July 15th was the one-year anniversary of our daughter having a cardiac arrest during her cancer journey. I still remember the drive. Joyce was in Columbus. They were in the hospital waiting in the ER. I still remember the drive from here up to Columbus. My nephew came and drove me in the night. For two hours, they were working on her in the ER, trying to establish a heart rhythm. And she kept going in and out of arrhythmias. And after two hours, they were able to get a pulse. And You know, we've had friends, doctor friends tell us that sometimes even 10 minutes of trying to do that and the patient comes out as a vegetable with brain dead or brain severe damage. She came out with no deficit. Absolutely no neurologic deficit, no lung deficit, no liver deficit, no kidney problem. She came out of all of that. And then six months later, exactly to the day on January 15th, 2023, the Lord called her home. What about the six months? Why did God give us the six months? You know, after she died, when we were sitting up with his husband, Cameron, and Cameron said there were two things that Kristen was wrestling with. One was whether God truly loved her, because she would pray and then the scans could get worse, and she's wondering whether God was punishing her for something. And the other thing was that she was scared of death in the sense that not that she was afraid to die, she was scared of leaving Cameron and leaving us leaving her brother Andrew. And uh, Cameron said, during those six months, God was working. God took away those fears. The doubt whether God loved her, and the, the fear of death, she already died and came back. So in those six months, God had a purpose. And even though we continue to miss and grieve her loss, we can rejoice. She is rejoicing in the Lord's presence. Was God not working during those six months? No. God is always, God is always, God is always working. He's working out His plan and purpose in each of our lives. The last few months have been very difficult for Evan and Juanita. It seemed like he was getting worse and worse and worse. Was God not working? Uh-uh. God is always working. 
He brought them out and now he's moving them in his will and plan. And we pray for the Lord's blessing on their continued stay and ministry that the Lord would perhaps provide in Chicago. God is always working. That's what the uh, Lord replied to the prophet when the prophet asked the question, are you not doing anything? He says in chapter 1 verse 5, I'm doing a work you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. He would raise up the Babylonians to chasten and judge his people. The people would be exiled, but the land would get its rest for 70 years, and then the Lord would bring his people back. And then we see the prophet not just wrestle, we see the prophet respond and embrace the Lord in the last part of chapter two, uh, chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he obeys the Lord, writes down the vision of God's, God's vision for the future. He trusts the Lord and declares God's judgment. That brings us to chapter 3. You know, when we begin the book of this small book, the prophet was down in the valley wrestling with the will of God. In chapter 2, we see him in the beginning part, climb up to the watchtower, waiting for the Lord's reply. But in chapter 3, after hearing God's word and seeing God's glory, he's like a deer. The last part is one of the beautiful passages of Scripture, the last few verses of Habakkuk. We see him like a deer, bounding, jumping confidently on the mountaintop. Why? His circumstances hadn't changed. The, the nation was going to be, uh, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. The temple was going to be destroyed. They were going to go into exile. Circumstances hadn't changed, but he had changed. Because he was now walking by faith and not by sight. He was depending on God's promises, not asking for explanations. Can we be like that? Can we do that? Can we be like that? What took Habakkuk from the valley to the mountaintop? And your outline this morning, and the outlines from Warren Beersby, it's, it's uh, prayer, praying for the work of God in our lives, vision, seeing and pondering the greatness of God, and then faith affirming the will of God. Yes, we can be like that. The Lord can give us grace to trust Him like the prophet did. Before we look into the chapter, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, I do commit this time to you. Thank you for the freedom we have to open your word, to study it, to meditate on it, and then to apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, I would ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we open the word in Jesus' precious name. Firstly, prayer, or praying for the work of God. As I mentioned earlier, this probably was sung as a prayer psalm. There are other prayer psalms in Scripture, Psalm 17, Psalm 86, Psalm 90, are all prayer psalms that may have been used as worship in, for worship in the temple. Unlike the previous two chapters, he was now praying to the Lord and not arguing or seeking explanations. Prayer can and does work wonders. Let me say that again. Prayer can and does work wonders. The only reason I'm here today, standing in front of you, able to open the Word, study the Word, and present it to you, is due to the grace of God and the faithful prayers of my mother and her friends. Early on as young mothers, they made a pact between themselves that they would pray for one another's kids every day of their lives as long as they lived. They kept that promise. Sadly, all those prayer warriors are now with the Lord. Prayer changes things. Charles Spurgeon said in the sermon, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from, wit, from it we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. 
If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he is not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. One of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. Do we consider our prayer life adequate? Do we consider our prayer life adequate? <laughs> Many years ago when we were having, I think it was Sunday school format because we were interacting, I asked that question, do we consider our prayer life adequate? No one raised their hands except for dear Esther Powerson. <laughs> she raised her hand and everybody was kind of looking at her. Wow. She said, I didn't hear the question. <laughs> <laughs> those of you who remember Esther, that's exactly what she said. <laughs> or she would say, it was a wonderful sermon. I didn't, I didn't hear much of it. <laughs> but the question stands, do we consider our prayer like ad- ad- adequate? And if not, if not, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? I'd ask the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts this morning as we think about that. We have time for a lot of things in our lives. The Lord Himself, while He was on earth, went ahead in a quiet place and prayed. Prayer works wonders, dear brothers and sisters. Prayer works wonders. We need to be a praying church if you want to see more people coming in here. We need to see a praying church if we want to grow in the Lord. We need to be a praying church for one another if you want to be a witness to others. The prophet prayed. When things don't go well for us, do we first seek explanations or argue with the Lord? Or do we pray? Or do we pray? The Lord is teaching us as a family. The Lord is teaching me day by day to do that. Why did Habakkuk pray? Well, firstly, he had heard God speak. Verse 2, Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. The word speech, that's in the New King James, refers to the, means God's report and what God had told him already in chapters 1 and 2. When we understand God's will for our lives, we should be motivated to echo the words of the Lord's prayer, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. You know, it is God who ordains the end, but he also ordains the means to the end. And prayer is an important part of those means. Prayer is an important part of those means. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us he has prepared, we are God's masterpiece and he has prepared good works which he has ordained beforehand. Do we pray, Lord, what are those good works? Show me. Let me do that. Let me serve you. James 4 and verse 2 says, we do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. I remember Eddie McGee praying so often, we are coming to a king, great petitions we they bring. We are coming to a king. We are coming to a throne. We are coming to the throne of grace. We are coming to one who ever lives to make intercession for us. We are coming to a great high priest. We are coming to a faithful advocate. We pray because we heard God speak. Secondly, he saw and was overwhelmed by God's splendor. I heard your speech and was afraid. He was overwhelmed by what he saw. Have there been any times when you've been overwhelmed by God's presence or the beauty of his creation? I remember many years ago, the first time we saw the Milky Way in its entirety with the naked eye. It's on top of the big island of Hawaii, the 
uh, mountain, Anakea, which in, incidentally is the tallest mountain in the world from the bottom of the ocean. It's about 33,000 feet. 13,000 is above sea level. The rest is below sea level. But they have a lot of observatories up there, and they, they have these stargazing tours where you can go, and they'll take you up in the night uh, around twilight, and then take you up, kind of drive by the observatories, come down a little bit around 9,000 feet, eight or 9,000 feet. They'll set up their big telescopes, and as a, it turns dark, they set up the telescope, they'll point out all the constellations. But uh, that island has a lot of lighting restriction because of the observatories. And so there's almost no background light coming up. And in the night, once it gets dark, you can see the whole Milky Way like a cloud of silver dust across the skies. God had a sense of humor in God, Genesis 1.16. He says, He made the stars also. He made the stars also. The splendor of God. And uh, Habakkuk in verse 16 says, That experience left him trembling. Moses trembled at Mount Sinai when God gave the law. Daniel became ill and exhausted after seeing the visions that God gave him. Peter, James, and John fell down and filled with terror at the Mount of Transfiguration. When we see God's true glory, that's the only response we have. David said in Psalm 8, When I consider, see the heavens, when I consider the work of your hands, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? He saw and was overwhelmed by God's splendor. Thirdly, he prayed because he wanted God's work to succeed. You know, God told him in chapter 1 that he was going to do a work used to Babylonians to chasten his own people. What God was doing was not the work that Habakkuk would have chosen, but he accepted it and asked God to help his people as he has done in the past. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. Verse 2. Have you had that experience where you didn't like what God was doing, but you prayed sincerely, Thy will be done? You didn't like what God was doing, but you're able to pray sincerely, Thy will be done. Again, we did that with Kristen. We, towards the end of her cancer journey, when we would pray that the Lord would heal her, but it, when it appeared that the Lord wasn't going to, Although we prayed for a miracle, we had to start praying, Lord, thy will be done. Please take her home so she won't suffer. And the Lord answered that prayer. We pray because we want God's will to be done. Fourthly, it's not in your outline. Fourthly, he prayed because he wanted the Lord to show mercy. The last part of verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. What, what a wonderful prayer that is. The prophet agreed with the Lord that the, his people deserved to be chastened and that God's chastening would work out for their good, but he asked that in God's anger he would, his heart of love would be revealed in mercy. Moses said that same prayer when he interceded for the people at Mount Sinai in Exodus 32 and also at Kadesh Barnea in Num Numbers chapter 14. Certainly God answered that prayer. He uh, did show mercy to his people. Even though they went into exile, he pre preserved a remnant of them, and in his, own, in his timing, he brought them back to the land. Do we pray for God's mercy? For us, and for people we know that don't know the Lord yet. In your wrath, remember mercy. Lord, have mercy on these who are strangers to your grace. Don't let them perish. And then do we reach out to them in love?
with the message of the gospel. In wrath, remember mercy. So firstly, prayer. Verses 3 through 15, a vision of pondering the greatness of God. You know, one of the things we do every Sunday as we gather around the Lord's table is to ponder the greatness of God and the Lord Jesus, our Savior, who He is and what He's done and is doing. And the only response to that is to bow down and worship. But as one of the songs in the Black Book says, His beauty shines far above our feeble powers of praise. His beauty shines far above our feeble, our feeble powers of praise. In the song, How Great Thou Art, it says, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hands have made. And then it says, And when I think that God is son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. And then the response in the chorus, Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, How great thou art, how great thou art. The prophet had an experience where he saw the vision of God's greatness. These verses kind of outline now the journey of Israel through the, uh, uh, the desert into the promised land. Verse uh, 3, God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Mount Paran is uh, likely Mount Sinai or perhaps the whole Sinai Peninsula. Everything about this portion reveals the glory of God. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. The imagery that he presents has some parallels to uh, the one that um, Daniel describes or Ezekiel describes or that John describes in the book of Revelation. His glory cannot, his glory cannot be described adequately. You know, when you drive on a cloudy day and you're driving and suddenly you see a little break in the clouds and the sun shines through. Have you had that experience when you see the sun's rays coming down from the clouds like if you think of that and amplify that a million times, the brightness of that, and you'd think you'd be blinded probably. But <laughs> even that cannot describe a fraction of God's glory. God's glory cannot be described. Prophet calls him the Holy One. The Holy One from Mount Paran. When Brother Dave Glock used to come here, he, when we were talking about the attributes of God, he his opinion was that God's primary attribute was His holiness. His primary attribute was His holiness. And I think he's right. Every other attribute is filtered through the lens of His holiness. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand. And there His power was hidden, the power in His hands. Verse 5 takes us to Egypt, describing the plagues and the pestilences that God wrought on the nation of Egypt. And He was again showing His glory through that. Exodus 12 and verse 12 says, Against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the Lord. It was not just rescuing. He was showing who the true God was, not the gods of Egypt. God Jehovah, God Almighty. In Old Testament times, God often reveals His glory through such judgments. But in this present dispensation that we live in, how does He reveal His glory? Well, the answer to that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1 and verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, beheld His glory. Peter, describing the transfiguration, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. The book of Hebrews, the first few verses, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. God shows His glory through His Son. 
Have you ever considered this? I was the first plague in Egypt was the turning of water into blood, so that the people could not drink the water. The first miracle the Lord performed was the turning of water into wine, so that people could drink the best wine there was and enjoy that wedding that they were at in Cana of Galilee. And then in John chapter 4, the Lord speaking with a Samaritan woman says, I am the living water, whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. The glory of God. Secondly, the, God, the Lord stood in power, verses 6 and 7. You know, if in military, in wars, the military leaders either move forward or retreat. They don't stand still. The imagery here is, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, verse 6. And the everlasting mountains were scattered, the perpetual hills bowed, his ways are everlasting. He calmly measured the earth as a prelude to his action, but he didn't move forward, he just stood still. One who was over it all. Remember in Gideon's time, when Gideon was fearful, God told him to go into the Midianite camp, and he went and he saw those Midianite soldiers discussing a dream, that they, a vision that they had, and uh, how they were terrified. In Joshua's time, when the people of Jericho and uh, Rahab the harlot tells how the people were terrified of the nation of Israel. God goes before them and uh, stands in power. In Jehoshaphat's time, when Jehoshaphat was facing an army, he was terrified, but he prayed to the Lord. And then the army went out with the singers in front first, and God had the victory. The battle is the Lord's. This morning, are you frustrated or living in fear? I don't know what your situation might be. It might be a difficulty with uh, finances, it might be a difficulty with jobs, it might be a difficulty with marriage, it might be a difficulty with relationships, it might be a difficulty at work. The Lord goes ahead of you, and the Lord is always working. The Lord is always working. It might seem like He's not, but He is. Take heart from that, and if you're His child, He's working on your behalf, He's working. All things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. It doesn't say all things will seem good. No, it saying all things work together for good according to those who are called according to His purpose. The Lord works on your behalf. He's promised never to leave or forsake us. In this last week uh, prayer meeting, at Phil had read a meditation about the Lord's working in the present. It's not just a promise. It's a reality. He is working. Romans 8 says, If God be for us, who can be against us? He who gave up His Son, will He not freely give us all things? And thirdly, God marched in victory. God marched in victory, verses 8 through 15. Habakkuk uses poetic imagery to describe Israel's march through the wilderness. You know, when you think about it, the Red Sea opened to allow Israel to come out of Egypt into the desert. And then when after 40 years of wandering, the Jordan River opened to allow the people of Israel to go into the promised land. God will make a way. God will make a way. I remember some of you who are here have been here for many years. Remember Tony and Charmaine Naidu, the couple from South Africa who were here for a number of years. Tony was a professor at Miami University in Oxford. I remember first hearing we were having a time of fellowship and singing at home, and his wife Charmaine and Tony sang that song for the first time. I had heard it for the first time in our home. They sang that song, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. 
He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to your side. With strength and love for each new day, God will make a way. It's the same God who opened the Red Sea and who opened the Jordan River. He is opening ways today. Trust Him. Trust Him. Ask Him to work and open a way for you. Verses uh, 10 through 15 describe some of the battles. One of them describes the victory God gave to uh, uh, Deborah and Barak over Sisera when a sudden rainstorm turned the land into a muddy swamp and left the enemy's chariots useless. Verse 11 describes the battle against the Amorites where Joshua asked for the sun to stand still. And the rest of the verses 13 through 15 likely describe the rest of the nation's uh, general description of the nation's deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Just by way of application, two things I'd like to mention here. You know, the thing that lifts Habakkuk from the valley to the mountaintop was his pondering and understanding the greatness of God. Was his pondering and understanding the greatness of God. May I encourage you to do that. Whatever challenge you're facing this morning, there is one who knows what you're going through. And he is with you. And he is always working. Psalm 121 says, The God of Israel does not slumber nor sleep. He is always working. Ephesians 3 verse 21, He is able to do exceedingly abundantly over all that we can ask or even think or even imagine. That is the God we have. So secondly, the vision, ponder and meditate on and apply the reality of God's greatness in your life. And lastly, faith, affirming the will of God. You know, this section has one of the greatest confessions of faith found in Scripture. Habakkuk has faced the frightening fact that disaster is coming. The nation is going to go invaded. The nation is going to go into exile. Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. Many would be slain. The land would be ruined. And many would turn away from a God like that. But Habakkuk tells God that he will trust him. Let me read that section for starting at verse 16. When I heard my, when I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. You know, in the book of Daniel, we see a similar confession of great faith from Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they refused to bow down to the golden statue, and the king is ready to cast them into the fire, and he gives them one more chance to bow down and they say our God whom we serve is able to save us but even if he does not we will not bow down God did save them he walked with them through the fire a literal fulfillment of Isaiah 43 verse 2 when you walk through the fire you will not be burned they were not burned when they came out there was not even the smell of smoke on their clothes that is the God we serve that's the God we serve Firstly, he says, verse 16, I will wait 
that I might rest. Uh, trans, other translations read, I will wait patiently on the Lord. The NLT says, wait quietly. You know, if Habakkuk had depended only on his feelings, as some people tend to do now, depending on our feelings, if Habakkuk had depended only on his feelings, he never would have been able to make such a great confession of faith. When he looked ahead, he saw death and destruction. If he looked within, he was trembling and fearful. When he looked around, everything was falling apart. Then he looked up. And when he looked up by faith and realized God's greatness, all his fears vanished, and he could make that statement of faith. When things get really difficult, where do we look? Which direction? Let me ask that again. When things get really difficult, which direction do we look? Do we look around? Do we look inward? Do we look? Or do we look? One of the hallmarks of faith is a willingness to wait patiently for the Lord to work. Isaiah 28 verse 16 says, Whoever believes will not act hastily. Whoever believes will not act hastily. We have many examples where people didn't do that. Abraham did not wait and married Hagar. And we know the results of that. Moses did not wait initially. He tried to deliver the Jews by his own hand by killing an Egyptian. Habakkuk could wait because he asked the Lord to work. And then he rested that I might rest in the day of trouble. Psalm 37, verse 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. You know, there are three verses in Scripture that encourage and admonition, exhort us to be still. In Exodus 14, verse 13, on the brink of the Red Sea, the Israelites are asked to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. In Ruth 3 verse 18, Naomi encourages Ruth to sit still. She knew that Boaz was going to work. Sit still and see what happens. And the psalmist in Psalm 46 verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Stand still, sit still, be still. Good exhortations to us. We are always wanting to work and do things in our own strength. The Lord says, Wait on me. He has his timing. I have difficulty being patient. I admit that honestly. My dad was a very patient man. Having seven children probably had something to do with that. Joyce is a lot more patient than me. I will wait patiently on the Lord. Ask the Lord to give you patience. One of the fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, I will rejoice in the Lord. Verses 17 and 18. I really love these verses from the prophet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. You know, by the time Babylon was finished with the land, there would be nothing of value left. But God would still be on the throne. <laughs> I read a meditation for you a couple of months ago that never say that God is still on the throne. As though there was a time when somehow he stepped down and wasn't. God is always on the throne. God is always on the throne, not just still on the throne, and working His purposes out, although it may not seem like that. First Thessalonians five sixteen and 18, the Apostle Paul exhorts us, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. The Lord is teaching us to do that. I'm not in that order necessarily. 
we've been able to give thanks. We're starting to rejoice. Paul and Silas were singing at midnight in the jail at Philippi. God can and does give us songs in the night. Psalm 42 verse 8 says that songs in the night. If you trust Him and see His greatness, we can have joy in our hearts and on our lips. He has to teach us to see our circumstances through God and not God through our circumstances. We tend to see God through our circumstances. We ask God to do the reverse, to help you to see your circumstances through Him, that He is the one who is powerful. He's the one who's able to help you. He's the one who can give you grace. He is the one who's working. Then you can have joy and rejoice in Him, regardless of circumstances. In the upper room, the Lord told His disciples in John fifteen eleven, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. What things? He was talking about the vine. Remember the first part of that word? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides me, abide in my love. He continued to encourage them. And then He said that, right before he was going to go to the cross, that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. There is a place coming where there is fullness of joy. The psalmist says in Psalm 16, 11, at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy presence. I'm so thankful that there are loved ones who have gone on before who are experiencing that even today. In thy presence is fullness of joy. But we can have that joy even today. You know that uh, little chorus that we sing, which has become, it's gone worldwide. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Laurie Klein, who wrote that, was a young mother. They were dirt poor. Her husband was in college. Uh, they had a trailer home, and she had a musical background. But all they had was, a, and she had a little, uh, less than a one-year-old in the house. And Sunday morning, she, many years ago, she she writes about it. She she wanted to go to church, but she didn't have any transportation to go, and there was, she, they didn't know anybody in that trailer home park. And uh, she was just sitting and kind of strumming the guitar, and she she said, "Lord, I don't have anything to give you. If you want me to worship you." You have to give me something. And she said, uh, the first couple lines of that song just came to her as a gift from the Lord. She started strumming the words and the melody, and then the rest of the song followed that morning, and she sang it to the Lord. It's become a chorus that's gone worldwide. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. O my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King. In what you hear, let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. I was Googling yesterday to see if she had written any more songs. I couldn't find any. That was a gift from the Lord. I love you, Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. Lastly, I will rely on the Lord. I will rely on the Lord. You know, if my verse 16, if my legs were shaking and trembling... I would probably find a place to sit down and rest. <laughs> but Habakkuk be- began to bound upon the mountain top like a deer. Many, m- many years ago, I remember we were on a tour bus in Alaska, and we, the driver suddenly stopped on the road. He said, look up there, and there was a mountain. And up on the cliffs there, you could see these white mountain goats. 
just jumping around, you know, jumping, they jump pretty high, jump down, and just totally sure-footed on. If you try to do that, we'd fall the first time we tried it. But God had fitted them for the mountains, and they were enjoying that, the place that God had prepared for them. Because of Habakkuk's faith, he was able to stand and be as sure-footed as a deer and able to run swiftly and go higher than he ever had before. I think that's one reason why the Lord helps us to go, allows us to go through trials, that they can draw us nearer to Him and lift us above our circumstances so that we can be on the mountaintop with Him. God made, God made, God made each one of us for the heights. And if He allows us to go into the valleys, it's that we might wait on Him and mount up with the eagle's wings. I love the imagery in that last, the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings in the last movie in the return of the king remember when Frodo and Sam his friend are on the on Mount Doom and they're stuck on a rock and there's lava flowing all around and then those giant eagles come and lift them up and take them back to Rivendell Isaiah 40 they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount they shall run and not be weary they shall uh, mount up with wings like eagles the Lord renews us when we rely on Him. Psalm 18, Psalmist David says, It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on the high places. G. Campbell Morgan, the theologian, wrote this. He said, Our joy is in proportion to our trust. And our trust is in proportion to our knowledge of God. Let me say that again. Our joy is in proportion to our trust. Our trust is in proportion to our knowledge of God. Do we want to know Him more? Or are you satisfied with a superficial awareness of Him? The songwriter says, Beyond the sacred page, break thou the bread of life. Beyond the sacred page, I see thee now. I seek thee now. Are you seeking Him? Pastor Tony Evans says a lot of Christians today are like a loop highway. What does he mean by that? He says, you know, every major city in the U.S. has a loop highway that goes around it so that when you're driving, especially trucks and everything, so you can have the convenience of bypassing the city and not going to the center. So you just bypass the city and move on. He said many Christians are perfectly comfortable and happy being on the loop highway. They don't want to get closer because God might ask them to do something that they don't want to. Are you on a loop highway? Or are you wanting to know more of God? Our joy is in proportion to our trust, and our trust in, is in proportion to our knowledge of God. There's an old hymn that says, Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is His word. Once His gift I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now, now Himself alone. Do you want to know Him like that? Do you want to know him like that? I trust you do. Then, like the prophet, you can bound on the mountaintop. And if you're in the valley, the Lord can lift you up and bring you into the experience of knowing his greatness and rejoicing in the fact that you are his child. You're a child of the king. And he's coming, the king is coming to receive us unto himself. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this, just this beautiful passage of scripture from the prophet as he faced
death and destruction for the nation. And he was able to look beyond, to trust you, to know that you are the one who's above all things, that he could see your greatness and rest in that and trust you for the future. I pray for each one here today. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, that they would come to a saving knowledge of this great God and Savior, that you can work in their hearts even this morning. And for those of us who know you, I trust that we would want to know you more, Lord, that we would want to know you intimately, that we would want to learn more about you and then ask for your working in our lives so that we might be a blessing to others and that you'd go with us as we go back to our communities, to our workplaces, to our families, that you would guide and direct our steps and help us to be a blessing to you. And we long for your coming, Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We just ask this in your precious and holy name. Amen.